It is the Wednesday edition of Canuck Central. Satyar Shah with Jamie Dodd. Big show coming up for you today. Connor Garland is going to be joining us this hour. Then Kevin Woodley and also overrated, underrated before we get in to the pregame show on Canuck Central. As always, is presented by your local Grip Auto and Tire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. As always, get in touch with us on our Dunbar Lumber Text Inbox 650-650. And a lot to get into. And uh, we are going to be talking to Connor Garland coming up uh, in about you know, 30 to 25, 30 minutes time here at the bottom of the hour. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that conversation because we know Garland uh, will never shy away from telling you how he feels and the truth in a very honest and good way. So we look forward to chatting with Connor Garland coming up in a bit. But a lot of the conversation around this Vancouver Canucks team this season has been about whom should be playing with whom. And ultimately, why have we not seen Elias Pettersson and JT Miller play on the same line, Jamie? And when we sit here and talk about chemistry for this team, it is interesting because as good as Boudreaux has been at getting results out of this team, and they have been far better since he took over, they also still haven't been able to find a lot of duos and trios that are really, really successful. They found a way to piece it together and get results, and they get goaltending, and they've had some really good games and spells and all that sort of stuff, and really good individual performances. But that chemistry and long-term kind of assurances of whom should be playing with whom isn't quite there right now with this team. Well, really, the only, especially at forward, you could at defense you could look at you know Hughes and Luke Shen to a certain degree, Myers and OEL earlier in the season. But at forward, really, the only stable chemistry trio they've had has been was Mott, Lamico, and Highmore, right? And then Mott got traded, and because of some injuries and other things, that that fell apart. But Outside of that, you know, there's been moments where, you know, early in Bruce Boudreaux's tenure, it was uh, Miller, Pearson, and Besser, and, and that clicked for a little bit. There was a couple of games where Pedersen was with Hoaglander and Pod Colson, and that was really working. But generally speaking, it's been pretty in flux. You can't really look to any pairing of forwards and say, oh, yeah, they've been a rock-solid tandem all year long. Yeah, and so there's been spells, right? And you're right. I mean, when it comes to Shen and when it comes to Hughes, there's something there. And even that, it hasn't really been as, as effective recently as it was earlier this season. And as far as OEL and Myers go, I mean, I think that pairing is essentially completely done and dusted as far as long-term uh, ability goes. And that's why you got to be looking at shaking things up on the blue line this offseason, as, as if that wasn't obvious to begin with for a while now. But even up front, uh, and that's why there isn't a lot left to play for over these final 12 games. And I'm sure Connor Garland's going to talk to us about how they got to win every game. And if they win every game, they can make it in. And that's how these guys are wired, right? But as far as evaluating goes, and as far as looking at this team, how much do we need to see Pedersen and Miller play together the rest of the season? Is that something we need to see? Because we haven't really seen it. And they've done it in practice recently. It's And it looks like we could, based on the lines at the morning skate today in Vegas, it looks like we could see that for the first time in a long time tonight against the Vegas Golden Knights. It's an interesting thing, right? Because we know that not this iteration that we're seeing, because they're going to be, the way they lined up this morning was Miller with Pedersen and Pearson. So it's not the lotto line that had so much success. But at the same time, we do know, you know, Patterson and Miller can have chemistry on the ice together. We've seen it. But at the same time, I mean, with so much uncertainty about Miller's future, 
it's not as if you're going to, you know, even if they play really well for the final 12 games of the season, I, like, I don't think that changes how you approach the JT Miller situation, right? It, it could just be a nice to see thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean all of a sudden it's going to be in your long-term plans. Probably not. But at the same time, as much as we have seen this team, you know, go to three centers with Miller, Pedersen and, and Horvat, if you bring all three back next season, are you really going to be running those three as your top three centers, or are you going to be forced to use one of those guys on the wing? And Pedersen has been the guy that under Boudreaux has been forced out on the wing more so than Miller has been. So uh, maybe that's something we don't see. But it's clear this team also needs something on the wing. But but why? the reason that I do want to see it to some degree is why haven't we seen it? And what are the reasons why we're not seeing it go back unless it's a situation now where injuries are mounting, you're you're kind of forced into that corner because it really worked for a year. Yeah, oh, yeah. It worked really well. So why is it not working? It, and I don't know that we're going to get an answer to that over the final 12 games of this season. You know what I mean? Maybe it, maybe well, they go together and it does work all well, of a sudden again. If it works, again. then it makes, I think it poses a bigger question. Why didn't we see it before this? Precisely. Now, if it doesn't, then it's like, well, they're on to something because maybe they've... Because <laughs> it's know, over. It's, it's not over. working it's anymore. It's not working anymore. Whatever chemistry was there is gone. But And you hear players talk about this a lot. Chemistry comes and goes, even with players who have been on the same team for a long time and that sort of stuff. But I do think it is a bit of a... I don't want to dramatize, make it true dramatic and say it's a massive concern and a big problem. But I do think it complicates the evaluation here because who do you feel good about as a duo with this team? You look at every organization, you have, okay, you have a few duos to think of. I mean, you'd love to have a trio as a forward line, but you'd love to have duos. And what are the reasons why that chemistry hasn't happened? And you see it how the Canucks fail to read off each other well, right? We're going to play a clip coming up here from Paul Coffey talking about how defense partners need to be united. And I think even though it's different for forwards, a lot of same the same things can be true. And how often this year have we talked about when we're watching this team play Jamie and how they're playing as forward groups that there isn't a lot of trust right players are playing as individuals and the the spacing's kind of wrong they're not playing like a cohesive unit the question is is it something between the ears and something with the group that prevents them from having chemistry or is it simply a question of you have players that don't fit together you're trying to make it work together and it's interesting too because there's so much uncertainty about the future of a lot of the key forwards on this team right again like like we were saying about JT Miller even if him and Pedersen look incredible together in the final 12 games of the season, well, JT Miller might not be here next year, so it might not matter that much in the long run. You could say the same thing about Brock Besser, right? Like, you would love for Besser and Pedersen to really have established themselves as one of those duos you're talking about, right? With great chemistry, and we've seen it from them before, and so you get into a situation where you can kind of pencil them in as, okay, that's going to be a, a really solid duo in our top six next year, but... Again, we don't know what Brock Besser's future is going to hold as well. Same thing with Connor Garland, who hasn't really found that that one guy on the roster that he really clicks with this year. He's been productive for stretches, but he's bounced around a lot as well. There's not really, again, since the, the Mott-Lamico-Highmore line is, is no more, there's not really that one pairing that you can look at and say, oh, yeah, we know we have to play those two guys together. Right, and it's interesting, right? Even a guy like Lamico. 
he's nowhere near as effective when he doesn't have that speed on nope. his wings, right? And it's not just Mott and Highmore being injured, injured as well. You take those two speedy wingers away from him, and he's not getting to those spots. Because at least when he had those two fast guys, and they found some chemistry with this. It wasn't just, hey, you have players that fit together. There was real chemistry with how three those three guys were playing. And it would allow the speed that Highmore had, the speed that Mott had, getting it on the forecheck and disrupting the play enough that allowed a guy like Lamico to catch up. And he'd come in and play a support role. Then he'd be coming in with his big frame. They'd be able to cycle down low. They'd be able to you know, maintain puck pressure. And they'd be able to create some chances out of it. I mean, that was a really effective line that had good zone time in the offensive zone. And it wasn't just because you had players that fit. They learned how to play off of one another, right? And it showed how important chemistry can be. You find a couple guys that stylistically fit with a player, and then they click. It can work. And now that's gone. And we look at Lamico and we're like, eh. You know, maybe he's not as effective as we thought because he doesn't have that speed on his way. And I would extend this to one of the more disappointing players for the Canucks this year as well, which is Jason Dickinson, right? Because I don't think he's ever found that chemistry with anyone on the roster. He's never found that one spot where it's obvious he belongs and it's obvious that the players trust each other and are playing together. Again, you know, going from center to the wing, playing on different lines in different roles, all of that. And, you know, that's not the only thing that's gone wrong, but I think it's part of it that there's never been a clear and obvious role and a clear and obvious kind of line or at least pairing a duo for for Dickinson to be a part of. Well, and we had Paul Coffey on the show yesterday. He missed yesterday's show. Make sure to check out the interview with Paul Coffey on the Canucks Central podcast page because it was a really interesting conversation. And here is Paul Coffey talking about how D partners can have success and how important that chemistry is. Not only important that you pair your partner with the right guy, but your partner has to have trust in that guy. And your mm-hmm. partner has to know what he's going to do mm-hmm. before he's even doing it. They just, they just have to play together. There could be no surprises out there. Um, the more consistent you play, the easier you are to play with. That is Paul Coffey. And, you know, the, the chemistry and the expectations of knowing what to expect from a player. And how often this year, when we talk about this Canucks team, Jamie, do we talk about not only poor starts, but in uneven efforts at times, right? Or uneven performances, like a guy like Brock Besser, up and down season, right? He gets on a spell, he looks good, and then he disappears for a while, right? Like how many guys have had that type of year? And when you have players that go through these ups and downs, and on the back end, a guy like Tyler Myers, for instance, had a good stretch, and then he's not as good. And he can give you, like he gave a stretch this season where he's playing, what, 8 out of 10 some nights? But then he has the other end of it uh-huh. where it's like 1 out of 10 or 2 <laughs> out of 10, right? And, and I mean, and yeah, maybe that equals out to 50% half the time, right? And that's like, okay, that's, it's fine for a guy, you know, playing big and tough minutes. But, but that variance makes it really difficult for you to know what to expect on a game-in and game-out basis. It's hard for you to have chemistry. And I'm not trying to bag on Myers. It's just an example to make just because we're talking about the back end and how guys can have chemistry. But also up front with a lot of the forwards. When we have players here in the city or in, w- with this Canucks team that – are this uneven with their performances and have had such up and down years, then it is hard to kind of build that trust. Cause I'm sure within, within the room, there are guys that aren't sure what to expect from one another from, from a game in a game out basis. Well, how many forwards would you say for the Canucks this year have been consistent or JT Miller? And then is Tanner Pearson the other one? Well, I mean, even Pearson, he wasn't producing earlier this season. Yeah. Right. So I mean, he, Pearson, Pearson was okay, was playing fine. But when he's getting paid $3.25 million and fair. he had like two points in 20 games or whatever it was, 
Because you can go through every other forward who is expected to be a producer, right? Besser, yeah. we know the inconsistencies. Pedersen, obviously, we know what happened to start the year. Bo Horvat's had his slumps. Connor Garland was really hot, and then he tapered off. Every other player, other than JT Miller, has gone through significant stretches of inconsistency, right? And on the back end, you know, I would throw Quinn Hughes into the he's been consistent category as well. And then obviously Thatcher Demko, but I mean, that's basically three players that you're yeah. looking at and saying, yeah, you, you can count on what you're going to get from them pretty much night after night after night. Not to say those players have been perfect every night, but it hasn't been the dramatic swings and the slumps that we've seen some from pretty much everyone else on the roster. Well, exactly. I mean, you know, Tanner Pearson had eight points in his first 25 games. And then when the change happened since that point, he's had almost 30 points, right? I mean, he's, he's played far better since the change was made and he's been far more productive, but that first 25 games of the year, it wasn't giving you a lot. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like at least not from the offensive contribution standpoint. So yeah, the effort was there. His, his ability to play down low and win battles, that was always consistent with him, but the production wasn't there. And overall, that production outside of JT Miller has been inconsistent, except for Quinn Hughes on the back end, who's been consistently productive from start to finish this season. And he's unavailable against Vegas because of you know the stomach issue he has. So that's a big blow to this Canucks team. But it's not like we're worried about him. But the other part of this too is, now we've seen this for a couple of years. We saw it worked a couple of years ago with the lotto line. But the rest, we saw Pearson and Horvat work. But the rest isn't quite moving. No. So the, the question also kind of becomes, are these players what they are? And how much, difference, how much of a different product can you expect the more of these guys you bring back? Is it magically going to appear yet again, or is it what it is? Because sometimes we look at it and say, well, it comes down to just hockey sense being a bit better make decisions a bit faster. If you do that, you'll be a lot better. When I posed that question to Paul Coffey yesterday, and I'm going to play this clip here in a second too, where we asked him, sometimes, especially defensemen or, you know, forwards and everything, they'll talk about, we need to make decisions faster. Like, I feel good about my game, but my processing speed has to move up. Well, are you able to do that by practice, or is it just God-given? Here's what Paul Coffey had to say. There's certain things that certain players can do, and it's not a fault of anybody else if they can't do it. It's just natural ability. And I think the most important thing as any hockey player, just do what you do best and then try to add to that. If you're a goal scorer, add to that, add a few more things in your game. But there's just some things that aren't, aren't going to happen. I mean, you, you met, or I mentioned, you mentioned hockey intellect, hockey sense. It's tough to teach, but you can certainly encourage it. I mean, you saw the resurgence of, uh, but Canucks, when 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 Gabby came in, you know he's a players guy. He wanted guys to play their game. They're big excited to be happy out there, and that's what you can encourage game in and game out. And I think, uh, hey, listen, coaching the NHL is not easy. It's a winning league. Uh, you're paid to win as players. You're paid to win as coaches. So sometimes you lose touch of what's really important, which is to make your players better every single night. And I think they're real, real successful coaches. And there's a lot of them out there. Listen to their players. That's Paul Coffey talking about if you can figure out hockey sense or not. And there was a part of that, too, earlier when he kind of joked and said, uh, can Paul Coffey fly a spaceship? <laughs> Probably not, no matter how much work I put into it. It's just not going to be me. I'm not going to be that guy. You know what I mean? So I think part of it, too, kind of comes down to you are what you are. And how much of this roster is what it is. Right? And, 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 and from, from a hockey IQ perspective, too, when we look at, okay, guys that bring other players together, that create chemistry with other players, right? 
JT Miller's a guy that can do that. Pedersen at his peak is a guy that can do that. Bo's not a guy that really does that, right? I mean, and we keep saying, oh, you know, Bo gets better wingers, this and that. Like, well, he's not a guy that makes others better. Like, he's not a super smart hockey guy that's all of a sudden going to be this great, you know, two-way force, for instance, right? You see defensively at times the gaps that are there. So the question to me isn't about, you know, uh, can Bo grow into this player or not? It's who is he, accept who he is, and find players that work with who he is. And also, when it comes to this team, how many of those guys exist on this roster? One, Tanner Pearson? Especially when... You know, Bo Horvat just turned 27, right? And and with what we know about how hockey players age and grow, like you're not, it's not realistic to expect significant development after that age. It can happen, and you can point to situations where it has happened, but it's about what you can bet on expecting to happen, right? And I, I think the point about you know what can you realistically expect to improve and what can't you. I think that's one of the reasons why people get so excited about Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson, right? Because you look at the areas where they need to improve. And it's things that you can just logically think, like Quinn Hughes needs to get stronger. Well, lots of guys get stronger. There's a very clear and established process for how to do that, right? You, you get a little older, you do your work in the offseason, you put on some muscle, all of a sudden you're stronger. Boom, that makes Quinn Hughes a better player. But the thing that Quinn Hughes and Elias Pettersson both have, it's that high-end elite hockey IQ that you're talking about, Sat, right? That other players probably won't be able to add. So yeah. they have the kind of thing you can't teach, they can't learn you can learn a lot of the other stuff, right? You can learn how to get stronger. You can learn how to be a little smarter defensively, do all of those things, but they have those kind of superstar innate qualities that you don't find very often. And it's not realistic to expect other players to acquire those along the way. Right. And the other part of this also kind of becomes how realistic can you be in identifying who is what and making those decisions on those players, right? Because I, I, I mean... Connor Garland isn't all of a sudden going to become something else. Brock Besser is all of a sudden not going to become something else. I mean, these players are what they are, right? And so I think expecting them to be something else is going to be a fool's errand. And I wonder why sometimes we hear certain players' names in in the trade block. It kind of probably tells you this organization may not see that fit as well, right? And they're like, let's get ahead of this because the fit's not there. So that's kind of what I wonder about. And I think this team needs players still that make those around them better, that are able to build chemistry with other players because they don't have enough of that on this roster. And I think that's one of the reasons we've heard so many names been out there at the trade deadline from the Canucks and just one of the reasons we're kind of getting the sense that there could be significant changes coming is the front office recognizing that you know it's just kind of crossing your fingers and hoping that a bunch of these players take big steps forward and that's how the team gets better that's not really going to cut it right as you said a lot of these guys that's they are who they are that's hope as a plan yes and so if if you're not going to do that and you're already capped out and you don't have this wealth of prospects coming, well, then you're going to have to start getting creative and you're going to have to start making some tough decisions, right? Because, again, otherwise you're just hoping, right? And and you can look at each player individually and find reasons to hope that they take this massive developmental leap, but we just know in total that's not going to happen for everyone, right? And and again, if that's your plan, you don't really have much of a plan. Right, and and I think that's, that's going to be a big part of this. And I think this organization has really been... Um, honest about what things they need to do and how they need to get to that point. And I think that they're very aware of the shortcomings for this team. But the other issue here is you can't trade everyone. And nobody wants to go, well, at least, you know, I know some people want to go through this tear down rebuild and everything like that. But as far as this organization goes, they don't want to tear it down to the studs. And it makes it's hard, right? If you tear it down to just three or four players, it's really difficult to build it up in two or three years. It's going to take a lot longer than that, right? So that's a harder thing to do. But they want to turn this around in a relative hurry with the understanding, however, of 
there aren't many guys we would say no to if the right package comes along. And I think, you know, people have it a bit wrong about this front office in, in the sense of they're reluctant to trade players. I don't think they're reluctant to trade players at all. I think they just want to get the best deals possible. And they're open to trading just about anybody outside of maybe two or three guys, really. And it just comes down to, is anybody going to force our hand on it? And I think it makes it harder to some degree because you're not quite sure where it's going to go, but also makes it somewhat easier because you're not beholden to much of anything on this roster. Because a lot of what we just mentioned, there's so much work to do as far as finding the right fit and getting guys out and figuring things out that you're not going to solve all that in one offseason. And... You shouldn't be too worried about moving anybody out here as long as you get the right value back in return. Yeah, as you said, they're not uh, they're not locked in to pretty much any path, right? There are a lot of different pathways open to them that they could choose to take because they're not beholden to anyone on this roster, really. I mean, the only player on this team that they acquired is Travis Dermott, right? Who's, you know, a third-pairing defender making $1.5 at this point. So they they have the freedom to do pretty much anything they want to do with this roster. And as you said, it's not as if there's a whole bunch of guys beyond, you know, the top three, maybe four on the team that you look at and think, oh, we couldn't possibly trade him, right? Like, everyone else, we see players of that caliber traded all the time. Well, I mean, we just spent 20 minutes here talking about chemistry and lack thereof, and nobody's texting in and saying, well, these guys have a lot of chemistry. Yeah, that's right? true. Like nobody's disputing that's anything, true. right? So I think it comes back again. We go through this exercise. Who has chemistry? How do you find it? And you get to the end of it, and you're like, well, again, outside of we Demko, don't know. Of, well, yeah, and outside of Demko, Hughes, and Pedersen, not worried about trading anyone, right? Because you're not beholden to their value to to the team to that degree quite yet, right? It's just about being able to f- make find the right guys. And I think Tavi made an interesting point as well. He said, I think seeing Miller and Petey play for the next 12 games is something more for Petey to showcase what he can do with someone more elite than Besser and Horvat. And I do think just the question of, you know, as we're sitting here talking and – I still believe that, you know, Pedersen is in that kind of untouchable list, at least for this summer. You never know what the future is going to hold, but I don't think they're in a rush to try to move Pedersen. I think they still see him as a building block. But then when you also factor in what we're talking about, which is that he hasn't established that chemistry with everyone, I think it's kind of an interesting question going forward. Like, what are the types of players you're targeting to be Elias Pedersen's line mates to try to find that chemistry with him? And I know we've seen him with Miller in the past, but it's been in a different configuration. And at this point, I think just any more information we get about, okay, who does Elias Pettersson work best with? What types of players does he really click with? I think that that could be really important. Yeah, no, it can. It can be, right? And I, I think part of it, too, is Pettersson has found, when he's when he's found his game ever since the early season struggles here, he's been a point-per-game guy uh, for, for the, you know essentially half the season now. He is having success with no matter who he's playing with to some degree. You can't really say the same outside of JT Miller this year, too. Everybody else is kind of like, well, if this guy doesn't have that guy, it's not quite working. This guy kind of needs that guy. So I do kind of wonder how much of, you know, um, Boudreaux moving Pedersen around is the fact that he can make that work as opposed to other guys really needing to find something that clicks in order to be effective. So I think finding a guy for Pedersen, I don't think it's that big of an issue, but I think for the other guys, it's a bigger issue. Right. Like JT, I think it works, but for Bo, for instance, how do you make that work long-term? And even on the wings, Garland, where does that kind of fit in? How does that work? And we went through a guy like Lamico when he doesn't have the wingers. uh, It doesn't quite look as effective. Yeah. Is there a way to, 
you know, salvage something out of the Dickinson contract, right? Find something that works with him so you feel comfortable having him in the lineup playing a role, for sure. Yeah, and uh, this text says, I thought Horvat and Hoaglander had chemistry last year, didn't get the chance this year. And did, they did to some degree, but I do think that's a good point. I mean, if you're looking at Hoaglander, him and Pedersen, it hasn't really clicked, despite the fact they're friends and, you know, they, they've given that quite a, a bit of leash when Hoaglander was healthy. But yeah, Horvat, Pearson, and Hoaglander last year, that line was pretty good. Mm-hmm. Like, it had some really good moments. I think with Hoaglander, it doesn't even come down to chemistry right now. I just kind of think it comes down to him as a player and how he plays. And so far under Boudreaux, and now he's out for the rest of the season, it seems, like Boudreaux mentioned, there are the details, so to speak, in his game have to improve. Yeah, Hoaglander, it's not so much a chemistry issue because he's been productive offensively with a lot of different people. It's can he take care of business elsewhere, away from the puck and at the other end of the rink? That's the bigger question for him. Yeah, no doubt about that. Uh, a lot more texts and thoughts coming in. We'll try to respond to some of those as the show goes on. It is Canuck Central with Satyar Shaw and Jamie Dodd. Connor Garland, he joins us next right here on Sportsnet 650. Welcome back to Canuck Central. This hour presented to you by your local Grip Auto entire location. Friendly service and expert advice are waiting for you at gripauto.ca today. Satyar Shaw with Jamie Dodd. Jamie holding it down with Dan Richu on the shelf in COVID protocol. But hopefully we'll be back next week. Well, without much further ado, we promised we had this interview with uh, one of the beloved Canucks, wearing number eight, Connor Garland, uh, with the Vancouver Canucks. He now joins us on the team. Thanks for uh, sharing some time with us here today, Connor. You guys got a big game coming up against the Vegas Golden Knights. And like, let's kind of start off with the season. It's been such a whirlwind, hasn't it? I mean, from the start, where you had a lot of success, you know, and then the changes kind of happened and getting back into the playoff race. How big of a whirlwind has this season been for you? Uh, I don't know. Uh you know, it's it's kind of hard to think about it now, especially with the you know a really important game for us tonight. So uh, it's probably something I'll you know think about more when uh, when when the season ends. And, uh, yeah, I mean, obviously it hasn't been it hasn't been easy. It, it hasn't been great for me. So, uh, but you know, right now that's you know we got we got you know twelve important games left. So it's hard to hard to think about how the year's gone with uh, with so many important games left. Yeah, as you said, Connor, still plenty of games left on the schedule, including a big one tonight in Vegas. We'll talk about that. But yeah, just, you know, from the team perspective, as Sat said, it's been such a whirlwind. How do you feel at this point about the season you've had individually in your first year here in Vancouver? Well, it's been horrible, right? I mean, it hasn't, hasn't, gone, hasn't gone well since, you know, game one to now. So, um, but like I said, it's, uh, there's, there's 12 games left. And when you win, each game becomes more and more important. So that's kind of our focus. You know, we understand the position we're in, that if we lose, you know, they lose important. So, um, you know, it's, uh, it's a big it's a big time for us. And, you know, I'd love to, you know, try to, you know, help us win some games here. So that's kind of my only focus. But, I mean, I understand how bad the year has come, you know, individually. But, um, you know, we're in a position where if we can win some games here and, and create some important games, that'd be that'd be real uh, real fun to end the year like that. Well, and ultimately, I think you know when you look at, I know you're you're hard on yourself probably, like a lot of pro athletes are, but it's not like it's a horrible season as far as production. It's not like you're talking about one of the lowest scoring guys on the team. So when you look at those types of years and the challenges you go through, and you've been through a lot of ups and downs and challenges, and you worked hard to get to this point in your career, how motivating does it become though when you go through these things and going to the off season or the rest of the season? Like how motivated does how much motivation does it create when you have a year like this? Not for just the rest of this year, but also for the future. Uh, yeah, well, I mean, I don't know if I'm, I'm hard on myself. I just, you know, I'm realistic. Uh, so, but yeah, I mean, it definitely, you know, creates, 
uh, you know, motivation. I think, you know, everybody wants to be a great player in this league. And, um, you know, obviously when, when you have a year like this and, and guys have had them, I'm sure, you know, I, I haven't, uh, you know, fortunately I haven't really up, up until this point. So, um, you know, but again, it's hard. It's like, like you said, it's hard to think about what, what I'm going to do in the off season and, and how I can get better and have that motivation. But, you know, because there's still so many games left. To, I know there, there's, you know, 12 is not a huge number, but, you know, for us, the importance and, you know, understanding the spot we're in and, and the fact that we do need to win, you know, a majority of these games, if not all. So uh, that's kind of where my sole focus is at. Connor, the team performed so impressively for so long after Bruce Boudreaux took over and really did an, an incredible job to get back into the playoff race. And I know it's it's slowed down a little bit recently, but as you said, with these 12 games still remaining, what would you say the the mood and the mindset of the team is right now at this point in the season? Yeah, I'd say we're, you know, focused and, you know, there's a lot of belief um, in our room. I think uh, I'm sure, you know, there's a lot of outside noise about, you know, where we're at and, and, and everything. But, I mean, our group, you know, genuinely believes that, you know, we can get this done and, and, and we can, you know, listen, the odds are against us. But, uh, you know, you've seen crazy things happen and, you know, we understand what the task is. So, But there's belief in that room. There's a lot of, you know, we had a good talk yesterday as a group understanding how, how we need to play for the re- remainder of the year to give ourselves a chance. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's exciting, though, because you have that belief and you have a group that, that wants to do it and, and it starts off with a, you know, a team that's right in front of us. So um, tonight's kind of, you know, how it all has to get started. Well, and as far as that belief goes, does it is it kind of based in the fact that when you guys show up early and you're on top of your game and you're focused and you're playing with that discipline, and we saw it in Colorado, we've seen it so many different times this year, when you guys are ready to play right off the bat and you guys are completely focused on your task, you guys are a really hard team to beat. So when you know you have that within you, does that give you confidence? And how, how do you dig deep so you can bring that for every game the rest of the way? Well, we have to know that we're, we're a desperate team, um, you know, and, there, and there's not a lot of room for error. So there's not, you know, we understand that our starts have been, you know, bad uh, for a long, long stretch now. And uh, we understand that these games, you can't, you can't have that. Uh, they're, they're too important and uh, too much at stake that you get off to a bad start against a team like Vegas. You're, you're digging yourself a hole that, you know, might be too, uh, too big to get out of. So um, th- that's a huge thing for us. Get off to a good start and our second and thirds have been great. So, that's uh, you know that's obviously a main focus for us tonight. I know it's been talked about a lot. I know the coach Boudreaux has talked about it. I mean, do you have any theories on the slow starts, Connor, and why it has been a persistent issue for the team? No, no, that's uh, you know that's not really my my job. My job is to get myself ready and uh, make sure I help our team win. And you know, my starts haven't been very good. Um, you know, I've you know I found uh, recently I've really only been effective you know in the third period so it's been taking me a little bit too long to get going so um that's something i have to focus on myself about how to get ready um you know it's 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 you know it's the nhl you really can't you know not be ready to go but um for some reason we're just struggling with that well, and, you know, as far as trying to find some chemistry and some consistency with line mates, you played with a number of different guys. And earlier this year when Pedersen was struggling, you guys didn't, weren't able to really build that chemistry. And you've been playing with him here and there. But when his game is starting to come along and you start seeing him be that impact two-way player, and you, when you get a chance to play with a guy like that, how does that chemistry work? And how effective can that duo be with you guys if you get a, more of a chance to play together on the same line? Well, I mean, you know, I think the you know, the team's real lucky to have three strong centermen down the middle with Bo and Milsey and Petey. So whenever you're with any of them, you know, it's 
it's, uh, it's you know, you're playing with a really good player. I think PD has a unique skill set with his, you know, shot. It's one of the best in the league, and, you know, he can uh, he can carry the puck from one end to another, which is, uh, you know, it's, it's it's quite an art to be able to do that. Uh, you know, and he, um, you know, he just he has a knack of, you know, finding soft areas. So, yeah, I enjoy playing with him. He's He's obviously, you know, a world-class player, and um, they're all they're all three actually very different. So it's, uh, it's you switch your game a little bit when you play with them. But yeah, I like playing with Petey, and um, you know, we've had some good games together, but we've also had some you know, tough games together. So um, you know, but uh, right now I'm with Bo and Dickey, and those are two good players as well, two lefties, and I like playing with lefties. I can you know find a soft spot in the ice. So I'm excited to get going with these guys tonight. How do you adjust your game? As you mentioned, you know, Miller, Horvat, Pedersen, all very strong players, all a little bit different. What are some of the things you have to be mindful of when you're playing on a line with uh, Bo Horvat? Uh, well, Bo, Bo's probably most similar to Petey with his shot. And, um, you know, you see where he scores from a lot in that in that slot area. But he's just uh, he's so reliable, you know, as a player that, um, you know, it's, it's easy just to go out there and play your game knowing – you know, Bo's there, and and he's he's just such a strong two way, two way centerman. I played with him at the start of the year. And, you know, we had a lot of chemistry for a while there, but uh, you know, I think just having someone who we read off pretty well below the goal line and in in the small tight areas and, and how we play, we play somewhere you know down low and stuff. So um, he's an easy guy to play with, and, and Nosey's kind of similar to that sense too. Is you know down low and how he lugs the puck and and holds on to it. So I know it's it's funny. I can, I'm trying not to compliment them too much. They're all three very, very good players. Don't worry. They probably won't listen, so they won't hear it, Connor. <laughs> Uh, and, you know, one guy I wanted to get your opinion on, because I think it, his season has kind of flown under the radar, and he's just so steady in every walk of the game, and that is Tanner Pearson. And, and you know, from a player that has had a chance to play with him, plays on the same team, what is it about his game that oftentimes goes underappreciated, and, and how important has he kind of been to the forward success at times this season? Yeah, well, he's a winger that's, um, you know, usually in the right spots, and I think that's something, um, you know, guys like to play with. It's just that consistency, and, you know, when when, when I have a linemate, you know, they I think they, they know that I'll be at the front of the net or, you know, behind the net, and that's where I like to hang out, and, and Pierce is kind of similar where he likes to be in the front and in the slot. So it, I think that part of our game works well together, but he's just, he's uh, consistent's a good word for him. You get the same thing for, you know, 60 minutes, and he, he doesn't, uh he doesn't change. He just plays the same way for all 82 games, and that's, you know, as a as a line mate, that's really all you can ask for. You know where you're getting with him, and um, you know I've I've really enjoyed playing with him. That's uh, I've played with a lot of great players in my career, but uh, someone who usually plays like Pierce is someone you enjoy playing with. I know we don't want to make you give out too many compliments here, Connor, but I, I did want to ask you as well about Vasily Podkolzin because I know he's stood out to a lot of people watching this team recently. And it's interesting with him, you know, obviously he was a, a first round draft pick, but it's not just the skill that stands out. It's a lot of the little things and the maturity he's shown as a rookie. What have you seen from Podkolzin and his the development in his game over the course of his rookie season? Yeah, I actually I played uh, three years with Ivan Barbashev, who's now on the Blues mm-hmm. Junior and another Russian, but they remind me of each other very like a lot. You know, the same kind of shot, uh, play hard, uh, really good defensively, reliable, same similar build. So and I've told Paz that he actually knows Barb's. We talked to him. We saw each other when we played the Blues. And, you know, they're very similar, and I think, uh, you know, Paz is going to be a great player in this league for a long time. You know, a lot of the older guys we talk about how good he's going to be, and there's just so much talent there. So um, it'll be fun to watch watch him for a long time. He's Probably one of the best shots I've ever seen. I actually shot one today this morning that I 
I told him was one of the hardest shots I've ever seen. I don't think he knew what I said, but uh, I was trying to let him know. <laughs> uh, so we made you give a lot of compliments. Are there any chirps you want to dish out quickly uh, to, to balance it out a little bit? Yeah. <laughs> no. no I just, the only thing I care about is their card, their card playing. I'm the best card player. <laughs> they, they all know that. Yeah, you got to have a trump card at some point. Hey, Connor, yeah. we, uh, we appreciate your time, man. Uh, I know it's been up and down year, but we always appreciate when you give us some time to chat about it. No worries. Thank you, guys. Uh, Connor Garland, uh, nice catching up with him ahead of the game and uh, best card player on the on the team. There you go. There yeah. you go. You know, I, guess, uh, I I did find what he was saying there at the end about Vasily Putkolzin to be interesting. Hey, Jamie, um, like the older guys, us older guys talk about him a lot and he's really talented. He's going to be really good. And he had a shot at practice today that I don't think I've ever seen a guy shoot the puck as hard as he did. And... When we watch Pit Colson, we watch his game, and we talked about him the other day. That once he grows into his body, and he's already a you know big dude, he's like six one, six two, over two hundred pounds, two hundred pounds. But once he's like over two hundred and really grows into his frame and gets to the net and gets a little bit faster, he's going to be impossible to stop. And when you hear players know, and when they sit here and talk about, wait, we always speak about how good he's going to be. He just scratch, scratching the surface. I mean, I thought that was a really telling comment from Connor Garland. And I thought the uh, comparison he made of to Ivan Barbashev, who, who Garland said he played with yeah. uh, in the queue in junior, another you know, big, strong, physical Russian player. And if you look at Barbashev's kind of career arc, with the Blues, you know, started out as a bottom six player, still kind of plays that role, though now, you, you know, but in the in the early seasons, you know, 13 points in 53 games, then getting up a little bit, 26 points the next couple of years, you know, now he's scored 22 goals this season, yeah. right? He's going to crack 50 points this year. He's playing uh, on their third line, I believe, with Braden Shen and Jordan Kyrou, so getting more offensive opportunities, but still able to bring that kind of physical presence, right? And I thought that was a really interesting comparison that Connor Garland made for uh, Vasily Podkolzin. Yeah, and and when you, you're right, pointing out what how what Barbashev is doing this year, and it took took him a bit longer too to kind of figure it out. But with Pet, I mean, with Putkolzin, it may not take that long. Who knows? Sure. But I do think, but but I mean, who knows what his game turns out to be, right? But we wonder about his season. We wonder about his game, and we look at his traits. And it's hard to because he's not the fastest guy, right? And he's not, you know, he, he's not a guy that's going to be this all world point scorer that's going to score, you know, probably ninety points or anything like that. But if if that power to his game comes in, this is where I think, again, the biggest growth in his game can happen. Because if he can't get stopped getting to his spot, and if he can force that shot and no one can get in his way to get that shot off, that's going to take it to the next level, right? And, you know, I've made this comparison before, but Kobe Bryant's greatest talent wasn't necessarily, you know you know, uh, being an efficient shooter, it was the fact that he could get a clean look from anywhere on the court. No matter who was in his face, no matter what was happening, he could get a respectable, clean look, right? And yeah, he'd brick a lot of shots, but he could always get that shot off. And that kind of came from, you know, getting stronger, getting quicker, and just having the ability to do those sort of things. And when I watch Pat Colson at times, he doesn't make that final move, or he doesn't get that last shot off sometimes, because... It's just maybe happening slightly too quick for him at times, which is just, you know, fine for a rookie. But I think it's also just not being to a spot on at the exact time, not getting to his spots on the exact time. If, when he's able to force his way to that point, I think he could really take another step. And to tie it back to our conversation we had in the first segment, you know, to me, that's something that you can't expect to improve and you can't expect the player to get better at, right? Because he does show 
uh, so much of the other things that you really like to see from a rookie, from his, a player his age. And again, just to to tie it into the Barbashev comp again that that Connor Garland shared with us, you know, that style of player who's extremely defense uh, defensively responsible, physical, strong, but can also keep up with off- offensive players. Right? Can play on a line with Jordan Cairo and and you know. Uh, carry the load right and, yeah. or or i mean contribute right like you know he's not just a passenger on that line he's helping to drive it and if pod colson can be that a player who you can kind of trust in every situation who brings that that strength and that power element but can keep up with your high-end offensive players too and compliment them you know you don't have to score 90 points then you can be a really valuable player in that role well and, and as much as boudreaux has given him some tough love and he's had a healthy scratch right and he's had some games he hasn't played a ton he's also had games where he's been trusted in big situations and um, I don't think it was. I think it's pretty clear that he trusted put Colton at least slightly more than he trusted Niels Hoaglander, who had another year under his belt. And I think for a coach who isn't afraid of telling young guys what they have to fix and s- sitting them down and being very honest about their games uh, with the media, and he's been very honest about Niels Hoaglander, has never really been critical of put Colton. It's always been, hey, it's just about moving your feet. It's about being engaged. It's about, you know, playing hard and consistency from a young guy as far as the, I wouldn't even say effort level, but how how deep you got to dig every single game to show up and bring it, right? And I think that's part of it for, for, for put Colson. But I think it's very telling that Boudreaux is showing him more and more trust as the season goes on, considering he's a rookie. Well, Pod Colson and Hoaglander got scratched in different games pretty close to each other, right? And I think from that point... There's no doubt that Pod Colson has done more to kind of earn the trust back from Boudreaux than Hoaglander did, right? And now yeah. Hoaglander's injured, so that's a little bit unfair. But it, it does seem like since Pod Colson was scratched, Boudreaux has really liked what he's seen and liked how he's responded. And, you know, that that doesn't mean he's been elevated to the top six or anything like that all of a sudden. No, he's gotten his chances, uh, like we saw him with JT Miller the other night. But as you said, he's been trusted in different situations, you know, out there in the final five minutes of a game when they're, when they're with a one-goal lead, right? He's been put in those kinds of circumstances that I don't think we would see Niels Hoaglander in from, from Bruce Boudreaux. At least not so far, right? No. And, and we'll see where it goes next year because it doesn't look like Hoaglander is going to be able to get back into the lineup being out with a groin injury. Now, on Connor Garland himself, I mean, a lot of things to take out of that interview. And Alistair from Clear, Alistair and Clearwater says, uh, "What do, what do you think the you know counter was from Garland in that interview? You know, because he says you know and a lot. But uh, outside of that being a takeaway, like Alistair and Clearwater mentioned, how how hard he was on himself. And he, I know he said, "Hey, I, I'm I don't think I'm that hard on myself." But he's like. What did he say? He said it was horrible since day one. He's like, no, man. You were were their best forward or their second best at worst for the first half of the season. I felt that to be like, hey, your season hasn't been that bad. I felt like it's not like – and we sit here and talk about, yeah, the production is not quite where you want it to be at 4.9 and all that stuff. And I'm like, well, it's not like, you know, you're scoring. You get 20 points on the season or something. But, yeah, but he was very, very honest and not happy at all with the season. But it's sad. I mean, it's easy to kind of forget now because so much has happened this season. But – Early in the year, Connor Garland, people were blown away. Yeah. People were, man, this guy's incredible. This is awesome. What a great addition because he was producing and he, he's obviously been in a slump for a while now, but I, I was very struck by that. And look, as you said, pro athletes hold themselves to a very high standard, right? But yeah, to say it was horrible since since day one. Wow. Well, okay. You know, uh, we... we 
we didn't get into it with him, and I don't want to speak for him, but maybe the fact that the team struggled so much when he was yeah. having success kind of goes it, back to it being horrible. It's probably hard anything. to separate those yeah. things, right? It's hard to look back and say, well, the team was uh, you know in free fall, but at least I was scoring at a pretty good rate. Like That's not necessarily yeah. the attitude you want to have. No, exactly. So it was pretty tough on him in that sense. But he mentioned that he feels fine playing with anybody. And I think to some degree, I mean, he's been fine playing with just about anybody. Like He can, he can play with guys. The question is how effective can it be, right? And how can his... How can you create an uptick in production from Connor Garland? And looking at this team for next season, we just spent a lot of time in the first segment talking about chemistry, whom can play with whom, and who are guys in the forward group specifically that have undeniable chemistry you want to hold on to. And it ain't a lot, right? It's nope. a long list. Who does Garland have undeniable chemistry with? We haven't really seen it. We've seen moments of him with almost everyone he's played with, but there's never been a sustained stretch where you look at it and say, oh, that's the guy that Connor Garland has to play with, right? That's the player you're going to get the most out of when you put Connor Garland with him. Again, he's had moments of success with just about everyone, but that kind of long-term, you know, write it down in ink because it has to be there every game pairing, it just hasn't happened yet. No, it hasn't. And you kind of do wonder overall organizationally how he kind of fits in and, you know, how are you going to be able to get the best out of him? And the the biggest question... I've kind of had too is him on special teams. He hasn't been used at all on the power play, or at least not on the first unit, right? right. Is there credence to maybe trying him on the PK? Because and and here's why I bring it up. We had Shayna Goldman on a while back, and we we talked about the power kill, which is. Um, your penalty kill, not just being focused on killing penalties, but having guys that can create some offense going the other way, transition chances. And not only does that help you kill penalties more and put, put the defense on its heels so they can't, I mean, the uh, the power play on its heels so they have to be careful with how they conduct themselves, but you can also create a little bit of offense, right? And she mentioned that if you look at the profile of Connor Garland, not a traditional penalty killer, but his profile could lend well to the power kill sense, right? Because I'm sitting here looking at Connor Garland and saying, if he's going to be here next season, the production's not good enough, clearly. Even if it gets to 40 points, even if it's like 20 goals, 20 assists by the end of the season or something, that's still not good enough for a guy making almost $5 million yeah. per year. So where are you getting that excess surplus value out of? If he's not going to be used on the power play, and if he's not playing you know, first-line, front-line minutes, not playing matchup minutes, and essentially playing second-line minutes, but getting paid to score more... Can you get more out of him if you use him on the PK? Well, traditionally, he doesn't look like a PK. Especially if he doesn't have obvious chemistry with, you know, Miller, any of Miller, Pedersen, or Horvat, right? You know, there's not an obvious fit where you think, oh, he compliments that player really well. I'm open to trying just about anyone on the PK, right? And and, it has and been a lot better. It has been a lot better. and yeah. But that's in part because they started to try guys like Pedersen and Hughes mm-hmm. and Horvat, right? So if there's an opening, if there's a spot, especially in these final 12 games, to at least have a look at it, see what you think, I have no issue with that at all. Yeah, and, and ultimately, it comes back to what we've talked about. Like, th- there's nobody on this team outside of the three guys we mentioned that you should be afraid of moving in the right no. package, right? And if there was undeniable chemistry between some players and you knew that their fit was just so clear as a need, then you can sit here and say, you know, you know, as much as this guy, he's the rug that ties the room together. You know what I mean? Like, you can't let this guy go because if you don't have that rug, it, the room doesn't work. You know what I mean? Like, how many of those guys exist? And in, in, in an interesting way, is one of those guys Tanner Pearson? 
And listen, again, I'm not sitting here and saying don't trade Tanner Pearson, but one thing that he's done is work with anybody. Yes. And any line he's been on has stabilized. And this team does not have enough guys that can stabilize a line. Well, that's the thing. Tanner Pearson, you can play him in any situation with anyone, it seems like, right? And he's going to do his job, and he's going to help the other people on his line do their job too, right? I mean, I think people forget that when – Miller and Besser were having so much success right after Boudreaux took over. You know, Pearson was the other guy on that line, and Pearson was contributing. Right? He wasn't just a passenger. He was winning those battles on the boards, getting in front of the net, getting to the dirty areas, and helping those guys produce. And again, is it at the salary that you want? No, it's not, obviously. But he has shown that he can fit in with just about anybody on the team. Well, it's funny because sometimes, you know, it's it, for a long time, this organization was obsessed with finding glue guys. There's nothing to glue together. It's just globs <laughs> of glue, right? It's like, what does this matter? All this glue, it's like you're not putting anything together. It's just like a big clump of glue in the middle of the of the ice, right? But now you have these pieces. But how do you tie it together? Where's the glue? Now it's like, where do you find the glue? And you still have to you know, raise the ceiling and get higher-end players still. I mean, the job's not done, so to speak. But that glue or, or those things that bring lines together, like how many of those guys exist? How many smart yeah. hockey players exist? How many of those guys does this team have that can fit in and make a line better? Right? And again, I'm not against trading Tanner. I'll, I'll trade anybody in a heartbeat, right? But I think it's an indictment. And also a bit of a conundrum when a guy like Tanner Pearson is one of your, like maybe your preeminent glue guy yeah. that allows your talented players to have success on a line. And one of, one of your most reliable players. And I, I know, as you pointed out, slow start to the season for him, and he's been much more effective since then. But again, relative to kind of expectations for Tanner Pearson, he has been one of the more reliable, predictable players for this team. Yeah, and I think knowing what to expect is something that does matter to a big degree, like we talked about and something Paul Coffey spoke to us about extensively. And what did Garland say? You know exactly what to expect and get from Tanner Pearson game in and game out. And this team hasn't had enough of those guys do that consistently, at least not so far this season. All right, we'll try to get to more of your thoughts coming in to our Dunbar Lumber text inbox. Kevin Woodley is going to drop by in the next hour, plus underrated, overrated. That's next right here on Canuck Central. Uh, I don't know. Uh... Welcome back to Canuck Central. This hour brought to you by Andrew Sherrod Limited, your plumbing and heating wholesaler, a proud family-owned BC company, helping local business since 1892. Satyar Shaw with Jamie Dodd. Keep getting your thoughts into our Dunbar Lumber text inbox, 650-650. If you missed the first hour, make sure to check it out on the podcast. We had a great conversation about chemistry. Who has it? Who doesn't? What does that mean for this organization and this team, especially heading into the offseason and also the final 12 games? Plus a very revealing conversation with Connor Garland that if you missed, you do want to go and check out. We are going to be joined by Kevin Woodley in Goal Magazine and NHL.com in a matter of moments here, Jamie. And we know when we turn our sights to goaltending, that is an area where we have no concerns, right? I mean, hey, between Ian Clark being here for mm-hmm. four more years, right, and Thatcher Demko being here for four more years, even though uh, it seems a bit uncertain about what, what the backup situation is and where DiPietro and Silovs may trend and all that sort of stuff. But with all that, there's like no concern about goaltending right now. Well, look what happened with Spencer Martin this year, right? I mean, that was like he was not on the radar. Let's put it that way, right? Yeah. Before 
this season started, and then you see what the season he's having for Abbotsford and what he was able to do in a very small sample when he came up from the NHL, and you know, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, and, and we'll talk to Kevin Woodley about this in a couple of minutes, but out of nowhere, the Canucks might have a, a very viable backup option next year, in part because of the influence Ian Clark's able to have on this organization. Yeah, and I mean, you're right. I mean, I think just watching Spencer Martin's development, and you got to give a lot of credit to, uh, to Curtis Sanford as well, who's the goalie coach with Abbotsford, who's been doing a lot of great work, uh, hands-on with the prospects and the players too. So it goes beyond just Ian Clark, but just watching the way he's played, I mean, it gives you a lot of confidence for the goalie institution and the man that knows the goalie institution as well or better than anybody in this market. Kevin Woodley in Goal Magazine, NHL.com, now joins us here on Canuck Central. What's happening, man? How you doing today, Kevin? I'm good. How are you guys? You know, we're chilling. You know, uh, Canucks game day. You know, we had a conversation with Connor Garland, and uh, he, he talked about how horrible his year has been. So we don't quite feel as bad about ourselves, but Connor Garland's pretty tough on himself today, even though he said he wasn't. But, yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, I, I apologize. I missed that. But uh, he, he kind of is uh, a straight shooter, eh? Like, he yeah, doesn't have doesn't... a lot of... Um doesn't have a lot of time for your crap frankly, yeah. when he's up on the podium, right? Like he just gives you straight answers and um, he's, he's kind of, you know, pretty much tells it like it is. And so I'm a little surprised to hear he thinks it's that he's that hard on himself. Um, Cause I thought there've been points in this season where things yeah. were, you know, trending in the right direction, but of late it's, it's harder and harder to sort of remember those moments. And there's a lot more questions than answers when it comes to both his performance of late and his future here. Yeah, no question. I mean, all the questions that we have really are still with the coach. We got to figure that out. But forwards and defense, but goalie wise, not too many concerns. But one question to have for the rest of this season: What value now exists for Demko as a starter for these final twelve games? I know the teams talk about they're still in the playoff race and all that sort of stuff. But what value is there in him playing as many games as possible? And how should they maybe handle these final twelve games start wise? Well, I mean, it just continues to build the experience i mean this is his first time through this process and so seeing it out till the end as if you were preparing for a playoff race as if you were still in a playoff race um and having to sort of manage that knowing that there'd be even more games if you actually made the playoffs like there's you know if this season had gone better or had started the way it sort of trended since bruce got here we'd be talking about what Demko has left for the postseason, right? So um, continuing that experience of managing your game and managing your body through an increased workload, like absolutely has value because at some point you hope he's going to need to bit to play beyond 82. And so getting accustomed to that, knowing what that feels like um, to sort of play at this level, uh, this many games for as long as you can does have value. Now the one caveat would be, um, if the air comes out of the balloon com- completely here, uh, with the reality that they're you know they're no longer in a chase, and this team disintegrates in front of them, that's where you start to ask, ask questions about you know what good is this doing? Um, if night in after and night out, he's you know being asked to stop bullets in his teeth, perhaps even more so than he has for large stretches this season, like. If the defensive play just totally disintegrates in front of them, then you start to ask those questions and maybe back off a little bit because, you know, if the if the team isn't engaged and in it, then what benefit is there for a goaltender to to play behind half-assed efforts? But as long as those efforts are there, I think there is value in continuing to play Thatcher Demko. And if you don't, when on those nights when you don't, um, you should at least get a somewhat motivated Yaroslav Halak. Uh, not just to show the rest of the league there might be something left there for next season. 
But as I've said many times, like this is a guy who views 300 wins uh, as, as a big goal for him. And so any chance he has to sort of chip away at the, I think it's final, he's got 15 more to go in the hopes of getting a contract next season, I would think you'd get a motivated Yaroslav Polak when you do go to him. And Kevin, I know uh, you know you mentioned that you don't want the defense to just completely uh, evaporate in front of Thatcher Demko down the stretch here. I, I did think it was interesting that uh, Stephen Valakhet posted some numbers recently about cross ice passes and defending cross ice passes, and uh, how the Canucks are among the worst in the league at doing so. Uh, what did you make of those numbers, and, and what it can tell us about how Demko and Bo Halak have, have fared this year? Well, I mean, that's how you create offense, right? This is a, It's not a surprise to me. Those are numbers that I have access to as well and things that we've talked about throughout this year on the show. Um, so it's not a shock. Uh, I've talked a lot about where this team is defensively and an inability to sort of close those teams down and prevent cross-ice chances is a big part of it. It's been a big part of their problems on the, on the uh, penalty kill as well. Um, so not a shock. Uh, something that's probably going to have to improve uh, in the future for this team as they do get better defensively or hopefully get better defensively. And just one of the reasons I've been saying all year that you know they do rely so heavily on their goaltenders because of their inability to uh, take away those lanes, to take away those passes. And uh, frustratingly at times, and I know Reach is off today, but you know he, I know he shares my frustration because we talked about this as well. At the other end, um, the sort of shot mentality on odd man rushes. Yeah. Um, I mean, cross ice and cross the slot line is how you generate. And so the amount of times that we've seen guys just go down and put their head down and try and bury one on odd man rushes, there seems almost to be, I don't say a lack of understanding, but for certainly a lack of awareness that, um, you know, quite often as much as it looks like an odd man rush and the, the crowd gets up to the edge of its seats in anticipation Without that cross-ice pass, without that cross-slot line pass, mm-hmm. in a lot of cases, those are actually low-danger shots. Yeah. You have to be perfect with them. And so um, as much as they concede them, I'd sure like to see them try and generate more, especially when they do create uh, chances off the rush. Well, the question really also comes down to, from that regard, does this team have players that are capable of making that play, or is it just a simple shift in mentality to do those sort of things with this group of forwards at least? Well, I think at times it's probably a little bit of both, right? Depends who's leading that rush, right? Like, and I've talked in the past about how the Washington Capitals won a Stanley Cup in the playoffs, in particular, just trying to prevent that at one end and generate it on the other end. All those odd man rushes they had in the Stanley Cup final against Vegas to the point where even though I knew the strategy, watching guys pass out of these glorious shooting opportunities, you're almost like, what are they doing? Um, but sure enough, when you have the skill to complete the pass and have somebody shoot at the other end of that pass without having to settle it and dust it off and give the goalie time to get across. Like, yeah, absolutely. They had the skill to pull it off. So um, not every team has that depth and that type of skill throughout their lineup, you know, but some of the culprits this year when it comes to putting their head down and shooting are, you know, um, you know, guys like, you know, Horvat, who I would argue does have enough talent to execute that pass. And sometimes it's even just the spacing. It's not even the guy who puts his head down and shoots. It's the fact that the guy that is the pass option isn't doing anything to put himself in a good lane. Like he's making it easy for the defenseman to close that off and give the goaltender an easy save than, than, you know, as the attacking team you would like to generate. 
Well, and, and as far as goal scoring across the league is concerned, I mean, it's, it's the highest scoring year since the first year coming out of the lockout. I know Friedman mentioned this too, that it's not power play induced. I mean, the scoring is five on five, even strength. I mean, it's, it's not happening on special teams as much with the uptick of it. And you look at how the league is trending. How much of it is that seam pass and how much of it is just scoring being up due to other uh, kind of factors this season? Is it sustainable or is it a blip, does it seem? Just give me a minute here to get out of the fetal position. <laughs> yeah, every goalie's nightmare. Sure, bring the goalie guy on to talk about historic levels of scoring. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Sorry. See, you can, uh, you can still maintain your goalie card as long as you answer the question properly. So it's still on listen, you here, Kevin. <laughs> listen, guys, listen. Uh, I know everybody wants to get excited uh, about offense being up and see this as the part of a great trend for the future. And certainly we're seeing offensive players have incredible years, um, and we're seeing guys like Matthews do things off clear-sighted shots, the way he changes his release. Like, there are so many great elements to some of the great scores in the league and what we're seeing. You know, Zegris with, you know, uh, the Michigan, um, the pass from behind the net. Using, like, all these things are great, and they all point towards better offense in the future. But I do think there needs to be a major caveat attached to this season. And the reason I say that is because at the quarter pull of the year, save percentage had never been higher, like in the past 20 years. I wrote a story about it for crying out loud and promptly got kicked in the nuts by the onslaught of goals, like literally a week later, save percentage cratered. But I wrote a story at the quarter pull about how not only had save percentage taken this massive increase, but historically speaking, every year from the quarter pull on, save percentage actually goes up. Like every year, it rises over the final three quarters because teams start to buckle down as we get towards playoffs. And they start to play a little tighter. The first couple months of the season is usually where things are looser and goalie are, goalies are sort of finding their their legs. So um, I looked at it at the quarter pull like it had already bumped up massively. And it looked like it was going to keep going based on historical trends. And so what's happened since then, guys? Omicron. This, to me, screams anomaly as much as the people that want offense want to scream that this is like this is the start of a trend and we're getting we're heading back to more wide open hockey. And as much as I even the goalie union card aside enjoyed that Leafs Florida game as much as anyone last night. Uh, I just don't think it's reality. I think you're looking at a year in which we've seen 114 goalies play at least a game in the National Hockey League, shattering every previous record. We've seen teams use six and seven goalies. Not just once or twice have they had to go like five and six down the depth chart, but the New Jersey Devils have been in their four or five hole goalie-wise for half a season. Night after night of guys who are like first-year pros. And Nico Dawes has had some really good moments and taken some strides. But Nico Dawes is a first-year North American pro. He's not supposed to be in the NHL. John Gillies has been in the NHL with the New Jersey Devils for a good chunk of the season. John Gillies couldn't even get an American Hockey League contract in October. Okay? So this is a part of this equation. And not to go just call out the goalies on this, because it's not all on them. If we're seeing this many goalies that aren't really supposed to be in the league at this point in their careers, not that they won't ever be, but just right now, um, what does that say about the rest of the rosters? We've seen it. Because of injuries related to the condensed schedule, 
because of absences related to COVID before we sort of ended the testing after the All-Star break, teams have used more players, more defensemen, more forwards. They've got ragtag lineups. And what happens? Like, if you call up a 20-year-old forward, you might get some offense. But you sure as hell aren't getting a defensively aware player. You're calling up young defensemen. You're putting guys in roles they're not used to, not just goalies. So I do think this is a uh, pandemic-related blip. I think it's also become a schedule-related blip. How many, how many times have we talked about scheduled losses this season compared to years past? Teams playing five and seven with travel. Like, there are nights where they just have nothing left. It's, it's like, I hate to use the word schedule loss, but we've seen a lot of them. And we've seen teams not just lose on a lot of those nights, but get absolutely stomped and run out of buildings and have, you know, that Leafs game, as, as fun as it was the other night, it's not a coincidence that that was the second end of back-to-backs coming off a, a game against Tampa Bay the night before. Like, teams just aren't operating at 100%. So, you know, it's not about just defending the goalies here because I think the goalies, because of how many have been used, are part of it. But I think a lot of people are getting really excited about this increase in scoring, and I'm willing to bet we go right back to where it was last year because it was there at the start of this season before everything changed with the Omicron variant. Hey, Kevin, at least from a goalie's perspective, nobody's talking about making the Nets bigger right now, right? So you have that to be happy about. Yes, I will. I'll take that. I'll take that. So, so disregard everything I just said. Um, scoring is way up. The players are way better. We need to give the goalies a chance to keep the net small. And, and speaking about that, uh, the Leafs Panthers game, the wild one last night. You know, we always like to uh, pick apart and kind of cross our fingers that the uh, Leafs goaltending might fall apart uh, in the postseason out here in Vancouver. But what about the Florida Panthers? How concerned about their goaltending situation are you? Yeah, I mean, a little bit. Um, Bob's run hot and cold all year, right? He's had This is not the first time where he's had, he's been pulled, you know, a couple times over a short period of time. I mean, back-to-back the last couple of nights. Now, part of that, too, is like, and I view both, both of these teams in the same light. Um, they have stretches where they just don't defend. And, you know, like, I looked at those goals last night, and not a lot of them were like, man, Bob's really struggling. Like, there were some really good chances to some really good players in there um as part of that so uh, it's you know it's one of those things it's um you certainly have to be nervous about it a little bit if you're the florida panthers and yet what are you going to do you're paying the guy 10 million dollars you've got a really good young up-and-coming goaltender behind him um in spencer knight whether he's ready for prime time or not like i don't think this guy's gonna blink from a mental perspective whether he's got enough experience he showed in the playoffs last year, right? They, they they went through three goalies in the postseason last year. Yeah. Uh, and maybe the, the biggest problem was they waited too long to get tonight because he was the best of the three at the end of the series. But by that point, they were down. So uh, I guess anytime you have Spencer Knight as your option B or coming off the bench, um, you should be less worried. Uh, and, and like I said, Bob has had some good runs this year. But overall, um, his numbers are sort of not that much above expected. And the blips we're seeing here... If anything, I think what it shows you into going to the playoffs for the Panthers is it's probably going to be a short leash. Um, I don't know that they can get in there and afford to let Bob struggle for long before turning it over to the kid. Because like I said, I, I could make the argument they waited too long last year. Well, one thing I also find really interesting about all this stuff, Kevin, too, is as much as we talk about, you know, uh, teams that have really bad goalie situations, and obviously there are playoff teams that Leafs that, that have poor goalie situations, but how many teams actually 
are super confident in their goaltending, right? I mean, you have Tampa, of course, right? And you have Shesterkin. Freddie Anders has been really good with Carolina. Um, Minnesota has Fleury now. I mean, Calgary with Markstrom. But even Colorado, I mean, as good as their goaltending is and has been, and all the other teams, like, how many teams actually feel, do you feel super confident in their goaltending? And is it more than four or five? Well, I mean, the, the list you just gave me is a pretty good one. Um, I'd add Billy Huso in St. Louis. Like, he's performed at an Igor Shusterkin-type level and maybe not gotten the love for it because it's a small sample and they're a bad defensive team. Um, you know, I think – but he hasn't done it in the playoffs, right? Like, UC Soros is once again having a sort of Vesna-caliber season. Um, Markstrom, Sorokin's been really good, not that they matter in the playoffs. Uh, you know, you're right. There's as many questions as answers. Like, I think we've already gone through the list. I don't know how many more guys. Like, I think Robin Lehner healthy gives Vegas a lot of security should they get in, you know, if he's healthy. I think a lot of people, the way things have gone in Vegas this year, I think a lot of people forget that at the start of the season when he was fully healthy, uh, but the rest of the team wasn't. Robin Lehner for the first quarter of the year, like, played at a Vezina Trophy level. He was exceptional behind a loose defensive team. So, but you're right, Sat. Like, it's not the deepest list in the world. And even for guys like, you know, I think of a guy like Tristan Jari. He's had yeah. a really nice bounce-back regular season. But, you know, until you've done it in the playoffs, you haven't done it. And so those question marks will linger. And you wonder what that leash will be like if he has any hiccups, you know, early in the playoffs. So, at the very least, I think you're right. It's a short list of guys who have really proven themselves um, either throughout a year, right? We've seen, we've talked about Demko and, and some of the dip uh, as the season gets longer uh, and into new territory for him. We've seen that with Shesterkin as well. Um, you know, Kemper's actually a name I don't worry about because he's been really good for a couple straight months now. Uh, and I, I don't think they have a question mark in goal, but yeah, you know what I mean? What is that? So what did we just list? Like 10 guys? I wasn't, you know, I, I'm not good with the fingers and stuff, <laughs> yeah. counting, but like we listed just 10 guys. And I, and I don't know how much deeper around the league you go right. in terms of really settled, really solid, no doubt, number one, we don't have to worry goaltending. Uh, yeah, well, fortunately, uh, just to circle back to the Canucks uh, for a second here, Kevin, I mean, the Canucks obviously don't have any questions for their number one goalie. We know, given how Thatcher Demko has performed this season, but they do have a question mark for their backup next year. And at this point, is Spencer Martin kind of the most logical candidate to be the backup behind Thatcher Demko next season? I mean, assuming he's willing to sign here, right? Like, uh, he's having a pretty good year. He's, he put up some really good numbers in the National Hockey League. He's headed into, I believe, unrestricted free agency without having looked it up before we talked. Um, so he may have options. But there are a lot of sort of, I shouldn't say a lot of, like we look at guys like Charlie Lindgren are in the same boat with the St. Louis Blues. Like, for all the attention that Spencer's run got here, Charlie, you know, sort of been around a long time in the American Hockey League mostly. He went 5-0 and with like a 9.58 in the five games he got in for the Blues when Bennington was out with COVID. So there have been other guys that are sort of, you know, have been tweeners that are in that position. And, I, you know, I don't know what that market will look like. So if Spencer Martin's willing to come back um, and that's something he wants to do, then I, I think it's kind of, I don't want to say a no-brainer, but it's pretty close to it, right? Like, I think we're past the point where you need to go out and get an established veteran presence. Um, I think the veterans that might be interested, um, you know, for the last couple of sort of backup signings, they've both kind of looked at Demko as a young guy that maybe they can take starts from. 
I, I don't think you're going to fool anybody with that anymore. Right. Um, they know they're coming in here to be a peer backup, and that might not be what Spencer Martin wants either, but for him it's an opportunity to be in the National Hockey League. And if he does see value in the growth he's experienced in his game with Curtis Sanford in the American Hockey League, knowing that the principles are very much tied and very closely tied to what Ian Clark teaches, um, then maybe he might view that as uh, a really good transition, even if the only way he gets to play a bunch is if Demko gets hurt. I think that's probably, my guess would be a, a sort of a position he would covet, but without having asked him or obviously without him having gotten to free agency and seen his options, you know, I, I guess we don't know. I, it, I just think it, it makes sense. You need a guy who's going to stay around, work in practice, put in all the work, and see this as an opportunity to grow his game as opposed to an experienced guy that's just sort of biding his time, waiting for to start every couple of weeks when Patrick Demko needs a night off. Well, and the other part about this, before I let you go, Kevin, too, is uh, do you? I mean, you always need another veteran for organizational depth, even if you do bring Martin back. But sh- should there be enough confidence next season that if you have to dip into DiPietro or perhaps even Arthur Sidloves, that they can handle a few spot starts, or do you really need another veteran guy there? Oh, that's a good question, Sat. Like, and and I guess it would depend on what that list looks like. Yeah. Um. You know, I I would think that you you might look for, yeah, you might look at something that's more of a project, like Spencer Martin, right? Like Spencer yeah. Martin was a guy who, you know, quite frankly, was destined for the East Coast Hockey League, um, based on their depth chart and my understanding of how the goalie people viewed it. Like, that's what this season would have looked like if they didn't keep three. Um, and again, he deserves full credit for the work he put in during that first month when he wasn't playing to really buy into some of the changes and really embrace it. And the way Curtis Sanford sort of handled and managed that also deserves a ton of credit. So maybe, you know, you, you can find somebody like that on a two way who you see similar growth potential in to make sure that the other guys in the American Hockey League are pushing. But I think at this point, like, you know, Unless you decide to cut bait with one of the other two in, in Mikey DiPietro or Archer Silovs, um, I don't see how you can, you know, limit their playing time next year by bringing in another goalie who at the very least needs to be in the American Hockey League, if that makes sense, right? Like you're not, mm. you're not, if you talk about adding an experienced goalie, um, a guy with, you know, some NHL history or pedigree to sort of be in that three hole. You're not. That's not a three-way contract. That's not. That's not something that includes an ECHL option, right? The lowest you're sending them is the American Hockey League. So that becomes at the expense of playing time uh, of one of the other two, unless Archer Silovs is willing to spend a year in the ECHL. So those are decisions that I think have to, or or factors that have to be weighed into that decision. Um, and and is, you know, the other thing is like as much as we fall in love with the idea of having experience and goal. Look at some of the names that, that I mean, I, I don't mean just like, because I think Halak for the most part other than those two starts has been really good. But if you look around the league, um, you know, some of the veterans that signed pretty good backup tickets, even one-way NHL contract tickets, look at the numbers they've got. Look at the results they're having. Like, if it's the right guy, yes, there's some risk, but I'm starting to think more and more that, you know, um, the right young guy with the right, goalie coaching staff and i believe they have that at both levels here um might just be a better option than a name that's got a bunch of experience in the league but you know results wise is it hasn't hasn't really been able to hold water for the past couple of seasons and so um yeah 
I have no problem with running a, a Martin tandem and two young guys in the in the minor leagues because I think they have the right people to sort of guide them and get them ready for whatever opportunity presents itself over the course of the season. Well, we have a new regime making decisions, and we'll see ultimately what calls they make on the goaltending position as well heading into the offseason. Uh, Kevin, always a pleasure getting you on the show, man. We appreciate your time and can't wait to chat with you again next week. Thanks, guys. Enjoy the game tonight. You too. Uh, that is Kevin Woodley in Gold Magazine and NHL.com. Always a pleasure having him on here, Canuck Central. And, you know, it is super interesting as far as goaltending goes. And I understand why you brought Halak in, right? Because Demko hadn't been a starter yet. I mean, it made some sense. Now, the contract, we can sit here and talk about that. But you're at a point now where you should not be spending a lot more than the minimum on your backup goalie. Like, you bring Spencer Martin back next season, he's not even getting paid a million. Like, we're talking about 800 k 900 k something along those lines, most likely. Yeah, and as you said, if you know you have an asset like Thatcher Demko, who has shown that he can carry a heavy workload, not that you want to go into the season expecting him to start, you know, 60-plus games and get 65 appearances or something like that, but you know he can be that bona fide number one starter, and you got to save money somewhere, right? Like, you're in a cap crunch. They're always talking about uh, creating cap flexibility. One way you can do that is by not spending very much on your backup. Yeah, and uh, that's something this organization has to be looking at doing next season. Not spending as much in your goalie's position, especially when you have Demko and you have guys like Ian Clark and, and Curtis Sanford bringing these guys along as well as they have. All right, I appreciate all the thoughts coming into the text inbox. Overrated, underrated, and that's coming up next on Canuck Central.